Hello, and welcome to NapTown. I'm your host, Susan Neville, and our guest for this initial series of interviews is writer Dan Wakefield. Mr. Wakefield is the author of nine nonfiction books, two memoirs, and five novels, including the best-selling Going All the Way. Bill Moyers called Dan's memoir Returning a Spiritual Journey, one of the most important memoirs of the spirit I have ever read. Of his book Island in the City, The World of Spanish Harlem, James Baldwin wrote, Dan Wakefield has a remarkable combination of humility and tough-mindedness that makes these streets and these struggling people come alive. Over the next few episodes, we'll be talking to Mr. Wakefield about his life, including his deep friendships with writers such as Baldwin, Anne Sexton, Joan Didion, and Kurt Vonnegut, and his interviews as a staff writer for The Nation, The Atlantic Monthly, The New York Times, and other newspapers and magazines, with such luminaries as Bobby Kennedy, C. Wright Mills, Dorothy Day, Adam Clayton Powell, Joan Baez, and Golden Meir, some of whom became good friends. Again, I'm your host, Susan Neville, and welcome Mr. Wakefield back to NapTown. This is from my book, Returning a Spiritual Journey. If there ever was an innocent abroad, it was me in Jerusalem at age 23 with my knapsack and typewriter, romantic ideas of journalistic daring-do, $200 in American Express traveler's checks, and a Hebrew vocabulary of roughly a dozen words I had learned on the boat. God or no God, I was surely there on faith, both mine and nation publisher George Kirstein's. Just before I left, he had told me while pacing behind his desk and puffing his briar, it sounds like you'll get into trouble, but I guess that's what you want. That wasn't quite how I saw it, but I knew what he meant. I wanted to put myself at risk test my courage and integrity, expose myself to the kind of life-or-death experience I could learn from in the Hemingway School of Hard Knocks Journalism. I wanted to know what it felt like to face death, for I thought the experience would make me a better writer, and I jumped at the first opportunity to get myself shot at. I had actually read something where Hemingway said, in order to be a good writer, you had to have been shot at. And I remember thinking about the world at that time. This is 1955. And the best opportunity to get shot at was the Middle East. And I had published my first article in The Nation which was the coverage of the Emmett Till murder trial. And then after that, my Columbia friend, Sam Astrakhan, had taken me to a place in the Bowery called the Catholic Worker, which was Dorothy Day's hospitality house. And I did an article about that. 
called Miracle in the Bowery. And so after those two things have been published, I thought, well, now I've got to really think up something where I can get shot at so that I can become a writer. And at that time, the writer Arthur Kessler was really very big in this country. He was a Hungarian. He had been a communist and had left the party and written about leaving it. And he wrote a book, a bestseller called Darkness at Noon, which was about a communist who was put in jail under the Stalin regime and facing death because of, he had changed his mind. But Kessler had also written an autobiography called Arrow in the Blue. And I remember finding it in one of those great used bookstores that used to line Amsterdam Avenue around Columbia. And it was just great going into those stores and discovering things. I remember discovering a copy of John Reed's Insurgent Mexico. And I discovered this Arrow in the Blue by Arthur Kessler. And it told how he was a young journalist in the 1920s. And he went to what was in Palestine. And he was able to live very cheaply because he went from one kibbutz to another. So these were the communal farms that had begun the first settlement of Israel. And the rule was, she said, if you went to a kibbutz, they had to take you in for three days. There was some rule, and they'd give you food and shelter for three days. And then after that, you had to work whatever job they had and could assign you. So that sounded great to me because, first of all, I could get fed and housed, and also I could get a, an article out of it. But also, Jerusalem was my headquarters. I went there with my knapsack and typewriter and one change of clothes, and I had found a wonderful little pension right on Zion Square called the Hotel Himmelfarb. And the man and wife who owned it didn't speak a word of English, but they had a daughter, Ruthie, who they called Ruthie. And Ruthie spoke English, so she was very helpful. And whenever I went off on some journey, I could leave my knapsack there and stuff. And typewriter also if I wanted and then come back and get it and spend a couple nights in the Himmel farm. So that was all good. And then also I checked in at the government press office and there I met a great guy who was really a key to a lot of what I did in Israel who told me where to go and good things to do. His name when I met him was Jackie Wolfsburg. Later he got into the government. He got to be an official in the government. And you had to change your name to Hebrew. So he became Yaakov Aviat. And that was, uh, I had forgotten this. When I wanted to, a couple of years ago, I wanted to get my interview with Gola Meir. I wanted a copy of it that was published in The Nation. And they couldn't find it. 
And I said, well, it really happened. <laughs> you know, it was in 1956. Yeah, the, I went there to Israel in January 56. And I said it was probably in March that I interviewed Golda Meir. Well, they finally realized the reason they couldn't find it, that was not her name at the time. Her name was Golda Meyerson. And she was from Milwaukee right. by way of Kiev. And again, she had to change her name to a Hebrew name when she became foreign minister. So anyway, my concept was I would read the Jerusalem Post, which was in English, and try to see where stories might be. And the first thing I read about was that the fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, which was Lake Kinneret in Israel and Lake Tiberias for Arabs and the Sea of Galilee for the Bible. And the Israeli fishing boats were being shot at by Syrian gun emplacements on the northeast shore. So I thought, well, if I could get in a fishing boat, I might be able to get shot at. Mm. So I went to Tiberias, got up at dawn the next day, and went down where the men were assembling for the boats. And this one guy spoke English because he'd been in the British Army in World War II. And I said, could I, I'm trying to get on a boat. And he said, well, one of his men had not shown up, so if I would pull an oar, I could get on. And I said, great. But the oars were not like what we think of as oars. They weren't shaped. They were just long pieces of wood. And there wasn't an oar lock. There was just some wood holding it in place and twine. Rope. How would that even pull the water? Well, it was pretty broad. Oh. <laughs> and so we went out. It was really a beautiful experience. And we could see the lights on the Syrian guns. And we stopped. We pulled the boat up and then you decided on a place and then as it got dark, the men would pound pieces of wood on the bottom of the boat and they put the nets out and that would supposedly, it did, attract the fish. So no shots were fired, but it was a great thing. And then the best part was in the morning, we rode back to shore, Tiberias, and the Nassim was the man who was the captain of the boat. And he said to me, well, I can't pay you, but I can get you breakfast. We'll take a couple of fish. And we went up into the town, and there was these guys with little charcoal grills. And he put the fish on the grill, and we had breakfast. And it was only... 25 years later, when I started going to church at King's Chapel, that I read again the story in John 21, where that's what happened. Oh my gosh. So you actually got the fish out of the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, and that's what happened in John 21. The guys are out fishing, and they see this figure on the shore, 
and they think it's Jesus, and they go up, and they pull the fish up out of the nets, and they go up, and he's made a fire on charcoal, and says, come and dine. And he's got, puts the fish so on there. So is the fish good? It was very it was good. It, good. it was very, also, I really didn't eat a lot during this six months adventure, because I didn't have enough money. And again, thanks to Hemingway, I'd read that you could always skip lunch and go to a museum or take a walk or something. And I remember once being invited to some people's house for dinner. And so I didn't eat anything. I didn't eat breakfast or lunch. I just couldn't wait to get to this place. And the dinner was liver and onions. And I'd never eaten liver. And I thought the idea of eating liver was horrible. But I came to love liver, and that was a big transformation. That's the meal I hate most from my childhood, actually. Yeah. Well, if you haven't eaten anything all day, it tastes That's real true. good. So when you were out on the boat yeah. and you saw the lights from the three and guns, um, you didn't get shot at. No, I did not. I was hoping, but nothing happened. In fact... An Israeli police boat came up to check on us and to ask if we had any activity or anything from the Syrian side, and there wasn't anything to report. But it happened just three or four days before that, which the Jerusalem Post had reported. So when you were out? there? Were you expecting the shot at any time? Did that color the way that you ever reported on that experience? When we were out there, it was so peaceful (laughs) that I didn't really feel like it was going to happen. And the lights didn't move. First, when it was kind of light enough to see, you could see the Syrian guns the soldiers, but as it got dark, all you saw were these points of light in the darkness, so, and there was no... Sounds more like a Chekhov story than a Hemingway experience. Yeah, and it was totally dark, and so, yes, it was very Chekhovian. Very Chekhov. But one of the great contacts I made there I can't remember who it was who recommended that I see a couple, a man and his wife, a man named Heim Blanc, and he had left Harvard in to fight for Israel in the War of Independence in 1948, and he had been blinded in the war. And after being blinded, He had become the leading Arabic scholar in Israel. A really remarkable, brilliant guy. And his wife, who was absolutely beautiful, Judy, and she had been head of the Smith College Communist Party. And they sort of knew everything and everybody. And the wonderful thing about Israel at this time, it was like, It was sort of like New York in the 50s, where everybody knew everybody. 
So when I was there talking to Haim and Judy, I said, listen, one thing I really want to do here, if I could, is there any way I could see the Bedouins? Because I'd read, also, just before going, I read T.E. Lawrence, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which is one of the great romantic <laughs> desert epics of all time. And Haim said, sure. He said, there's a guy I know in Beersheba. He said, all you do, he said, just go to Beersheba, go to the Cafe Arava, and ask for Moitz. So I said, well, okay. And I sort of, that's when I first knew Haim, and I thought, maybe he's just putting me off, mm -hmm. you know, a wild goose chase. But I hitchhiked to Beersheba. I got a ride on an oil truck, and I... Stayed at a pension, and the next morning, I go to the Café Arava, and I say, uh, anybody here know a guy named Moitz? He said, yeah, he's over in the corner table. So I went over, I introduced myself, I said, Hein Blanc told me you could help me get to the Bedouins. And she says, yeah, sure. He said, I trade with the Bedouins, and we could go out this afternoon, and they'll probably see you as a celebrity because you're an American, and probably kill the lamb, and we will have a good dinner. So we went out there, and that was indeed the case, and we sat in this large tent with the men. I never saw a woman the whole time I was there, but you heard behind the tent or outside the tent, you heard this tinkling sound, Just and it was the women going back and forth, their bracelets and jewelry that they wore made this beautiful oh, tinkling so sound. So you were out in the desert, is this nighttime? No, it, was, it was, yeah, it was the it afternoon. Town? <laughs> it was the afternoon, it was bright, and it was very light-colored sand, and... We were inside the tent, which is cool and dark. Not too dark to see everybody, but I mean, it was not bright like outside. And so the lamb was killed, the food was being made, and they brought in this huge, it was almost like a tub, which had rice and lamb. And just like it was the same thing that was served to T.E. Lawrence. And as he had pointed out, every part of the lamb is in it. And the custom is it went around to you and you put your hand in and you balled up some rice and took some part of the lamb and just put it in your mouth and eat it. You're not supposed to look and pick out a piece. You just put your hand in. So, of course, my terror was I would get the eye oh. because I knew that. <laughs> the eyes are in there. Yeah. And I lucked out of that. But it was great knowing I'm having the same meal that Lawrence oh, had. And then afterwards, you get these series, I think it was five different types of coffee each served separately, and again, exactly as it was written about in The Seven Pillars of Wisdom.
So did the women come in and do the serving? Oh, no. Or there were men doing the serving, the women were we, just preparing the food outside, but you never, you, never, you were not allowed to never receive never saw one. a woman. Wow. Somehow a man evidently went out and got this large pot and then passed it around. I guess there were about 10 or 12 of us sitting in this circle, and they all were dressed as Bedouins, just like in, uh, what was the great movie of Lawrence of Arabia? Lawrence, I think it was Lawrence of Arabia, wasn't it? Yeah, I guess so. I love that movie. So I carried out my plan to go to a different kibbutz and try to get a story and do whatever work they had. And I quickly learned the kibbutzim, which is the plural, were divided into ones sponsored by different political parties. And the kibbutzim, most of them were either sponsored by Mapai, which was sort of the central, the middle of the road liberal party. And the others were sponsored by Mapam, which was the left wing. And I quickly learned that on a Mapam kibbutz, you worked much harder than you did on a Mapai kibbutz. And I was at a Mapam kibbutz called... That's the left wing, right? Yeah. I was at a Mapam kibbutz called Nerim. And there I was a hay pitcher. And I got to tell you, I have never worked that hard in my life. That was the hardest physical work I've ever done. But it was great. I mean, I could do it. And before the kibbutz I'd been on before that, it was a mapai kibbutz where I just picked vegetables. So that was not very challenging. But my favorite of all was a kibbutz in the Negev Desert called Steboker. And it had been founded by David Ben-Gurion, the founder of Israel. And he wanted to get the farthest out place. And this was like in the middle of nowhere in the desert. It was way south of Beersheba. And so I went there and I said, I'd like to work. And he said, well, we have a sheep camp, which is farther out than we are. And one of the men has gone to Tel Aviv for his annual vacation. So we need somebody there. So they took me to the sheep camp, which indeed farther out than the regular kibbutz. And all it was, it was a converted, it was a railway car, an old railway car. They put bunks in and a little stove. So there were usually three men and one woman. And the woman stayed in the car and made the meals and cleaned the house. And one man took out one of the herds of sheep and then two took out the big herd. So I would be one of the two guys on the big herd. And they gave me a rifle and taught me how to shoot the rifle. 
They said that was because sometimes hostile Bedouins came by and wanted to take the sheep or take something, and so they all had a rifle. Were you supposed to shoot the Bedouins if they came by to get yeah, a sheep or, shoot, or, or shoot around them? or It wasn't just said. I mean, I guess you had to make up your mind right. on the spot. If you they're going to shoot at you, I presume you shot back. But it started out before dawn. So it was absolutely dark when you started. And we went, I don't know, what distance, maybe a couple of miles, because you had to get the sheep ahead of you going. And I thought being a shepherd would be this idyllic thing where you sat on the hillside and somebody played a lute. But it was one <laughs> of the songs. It was one of the hardest jobs because the sheep were always running away. They were all the lost sheep or they wanted to be. So you had to be constantly going. You hardly had time to eat, you know. You had sandwiches, and you had a fire, and cook something on it. I don't remember what. But you had to constantly be getting up and running after the sheep that were going off. And you came back. The timing, you brought the herd back so that it was time. So you arrived at the car, the railroad car where you lived, you arrived there just as the sun went down. And then the way you bathed was, well, first you got back and you had dinner that the woman had cooked, and then you went out and there was a pipeline in the Negev, a water pipeline. And there was a place where you went that you could unscrew pipeline, and this huge jet of water would shoot up into the air, and you stepped into this cold water thing, and that was your bath. Mm. But I remember, for one thing, in the desert, even in the desert in California, you see more stars than you've ever seen, but in Israel, I mean, there wasn't, there was nothing but stars. Mm. And I remember standing in that icy water and looking up, and the thought that constantly was, you've gone a long way from Indiana. Wow. It really, that was what was in my head, and I felt really great. I can't imagine that. I mean, that's one of the things I think we've all lost this century is, I mean, I remember even when I was a kid in Indiana being able to go out and see stars at night, and now yeah. it's very rare. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about the people who lived with you in the railroad car. Well, I was only there for a weekend. There wasn't a lot of conversation. Really? And you were so tired. It was, you know, you're getting up before dawn. You're with these sheep chasing them around all day bringing them back, trying to see that none are lost and straight. And you eat and you have your bath in the pipeline and then you go to bed. You know, you're right. totally wiped out. So where were they primarily from? Do you remember that? Like people in the kibbutz? 
I had less conversation with them. I stayed at a kibbutz on the Dead Sea. I can't remember the name now. But there was a couple from New York. And I remember asking them about why they had come to Israel. Mm -hmm. They were about just a few years older than I was. And he said, you want to know the truth? The reason I came to Israel? So I wouldn't have to go through Christmas in New York. Mm, interesting, interesting. <laughs> and I got it completely, you know. I mean, how do you even walk up to, say, the kibbutz? I mean, do you walk in? Is there a central office? You check in and say, hey, I want to live here. You know, you would see whoever was the first person you saw. You'd say, uh, I'd like to stay or where can I go? And they direct you. And yeah, there'd be somebody who told you where you could sleep and when the meals were. How many people were generally... And did you present yourself as a journalist? Yeah. You did? Yeah. And did Uh, you write separate articles about hay throwing being a shepherd or was it background? Yeah, it was background. It was to know the place and try to feel like I knew what was going on there. And, of course, there was also just being in cities. And, you know, I went to Tel Aviv. I went to Haifa. In fact, I remember in Haifa, I met the journalist I.F. Stone, Izzy Mm -hmm. Stone, who had I.F. Stone's Weekly. And I remember, and he'd been to Israel before, and he took me around, sort of showed me Haifa. And I remember he and I walked along the waterfront in Haifa, and he turned to me at one point, and he said, could I loan you $100? Oh, wow. (laughs) This was after (laughs) I'd been there about four or five months. And I said, yeah, I would, uh, that would be good. And, you know, so I got back. And in fact, when I got back to New York and I wrote to him and sent him the hundred bucks and uh, he invited me to Washington and offered me a job. But at the same time, I really preferred to be in New York and to be working for the nation. And Working with him, it was much more digging out facts rather than, quote, writing, as I understood. But anyway, it was a great thing. Can you talk about kind of the post-war mood of Israel? I mean, you were there not that long after the end of World War II. Their independence war was... 1948. It was after World War II. And, you know, I didn't get to talk to many Arabs, but they were clearly the subjugated class. In fact, I remember there was a journalist from the Netherlands, and he and I were taken on a trip by the Israeli press over to a Druze village. And the Druzes were famous as being the one group of Arabs who liked the Israelis. I don't know what they're there at any rate. But I remember 
And so the press officer was telling us how wonderful the Druzes were and how they got along and they did this and that together. <laughs> we passed some of them and they waved and then the journalist from the Netherlands waved and said, Shalom, you quizlings. <laughs> quizlings. <laughs> but I got to tell you, my biggest adventure was, I, of course, I wanted to go to Jordan. And the particular reason I wanted to go to Jordan, here I am struggling. I can't remember what the nation paid me. It wasn't their usual $75. Maybe it was 120 for an article. But I thought, if only I could sell an article to a big magazine. Mm -hmm. And I had an idea of selling an article to the Saturday Evening Post. And I thought I had the perfect story. Because there was a village called Beit Safafa that when the armistice lines were drawn in the 48 War, half the village was in Israel and half in Jordan. Wow. So families were even split up. So I went to the village on the Israeli side and I met some of the people and some of them spoke English. And they told me about the village on the other side. And I thought, oh my God, this is it. You know, the village that's in two countries is it. But I had to get to Jordan. And journalists were not allowed to go from Israel to Jordan. But what I learned was Easter, of course, was a religious holiday. And if you were certified as a religious pilgrim, you could go into Jordan from Israel. But you first had to get certified as a religious pilgrim. So I said, well, how do you do that? Well, what religion are you? Well, I'm a Protestant. Of course, at this time, I was a Hemingway atheist. And he said, well, but what denomination? So I raised, and I thought, well, my Uncle Jim in Kentucky is a Baptist. So I said, I'm a Baptist. And he said, well, what Baptist church did you belong to? I said, the 42nd Street Baptist in New York, <laughs> which doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. But anyway, so I had to go to the Baptist minister. And I remember, and he was a nice, very sincere guy, probably in his 40s. And I had to do all these pretenses. And then he wrote me a letter saying I was a religious pilgrim. So I crossed over in the old city, and the old city was really old. I mean, it was, I don't know how to describe it. The sidewalks were part of the walls. I mean, the walls came down and became sidewalks, mm -hmm. and you're walking down these streets that you're like in a tube. And anyway, I got up room in this pension, and I had my notebook, and somehow I had found out who was the former mayor of Jerusalem before the war, and his name was Arif El Arif, A-R-E-F, A-R-E-F, and God, how did I do that? I have no idea, wow. but I found how to get to him. I went to him, and I interviewed him. I had my notebook and all this stuff and writing all this stuff down. And then he had somebody take me to a refugee camp 
which, you know, if the Israelis knew this, they would have been very unhappy. And Jordan didn't want any stray reporters. So anyway, but my main point was to get to that Beit Safafa on the Jordan side. So I take my notebook and I'm, no, I didn't take my notebook. I just went strolling down. I think I put some paper and a pencil in my pocket, but I'm strolling down this little road and on my way to Beit Safafa, suddenly there's a man on each side of me, an Arab Legion guy. And they said, oh, and they started out very friendly. What are you doing here? Well, I wanted to go to Beit Safafa and see some people. And they said, oh, really? Where are you from? And I said, well, I just come over from Israel. And then they stopped talking in English. And they're talking in Arabic, and they're taking me to Bethlehem. And they did tell me that they're taking me to see the military governor in Bethlehem. And they're not happy. And I get into this, I think it was an office in a church. It was a long, very dark, dank thing. And there's this guy who's the military governor, and he's sitting behind a big desk. I remember he had on a big black coat, mustache, and he looked very hostile. And so they sat me down, and he says, and I showed him my passport, and he says, from where do you come here? I said, from Israel. And he bangs the desk and says, no. Uh. I said, he says, where do you come here from? So I thought, well, that wasn't the right answer. Uh, from America, no. Uh, from New York, no. So after about four of these wrong answers, he says, you have come from occupied territory. Oh, wow. So he said, I am sending you. He said, what are you here for? I, oh, I just wanted to see these people. Well, uh, he said, I'm sending you to Arab Legion headquarters. He got a car and these two Arab Legion guys sat on each side of me. And we were driven back to the old city of Jerusalem. And I was to report to Arab Legion headquarters at nine the next morning. So I get to my room and I'm pretty shaken up yeah. by this time. But then, to my horror, I realize if I have to go to Arab Legion headquarters, oh, and they said, bring everything you have with you. Well, there's my notebook with my notes interviewing RFL Arab, my notes from going to the refugee camp. Thought, Jesus, they'll think I'm a spy. Right. And in fact, that was the military government Bethlehem, you know, said, So what are you really here for? You you know. So I thought I gotta get rid of the notes. So I took the notes out of the, my notebook. And they were pretty thick, I remember, the paper, but I was going to burn them. And I so held them over the toilet and lit this match. I started burning them, and I burnt my hand and oh. dropped the papers into the toilet. So I fish them out, and they're all soggy. I, oh, my God, this looks even worse. Now this I'm really like going to get shot. Yeah. So... 
I'm trying to think what to do. So I wad them up and I go outside and I try to, you know, there aren't any garbage cans. And as I say, the streets are all, there's no place to throw it. And there's Arab Legion guys at every corner and walking back and forth. So I go back to my room and I think, okay, what am I going to do? I can't stick them up places. Anyway, I knew that it would later be funny, but the time it was very serious. I figured out the only thing I could do was to eat the notes. <laughs> and so I take little pieces of paper, wad it up, and swallow it. And I sat there the whole night eating these notes. Oh, that's so awful. And so then I get up the next morning and go to Arab Legion headquarters, and there's two guys there questioning me. And they said, okay, what are you really here for? And I, what, you think you're making peace with the Arabs and the Jews? No, 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 I just wanted to see these people. So they said, well, you may not be able to go back through the Mandelbaum Gate. That was where I'd come from, Israel. And you may have to fly to Cyprus. And I didn't have money to fly to Cyprus anyway. And then the indication was, or you may have to be in jail here. And so they told me to go outside where they determined my fate. And I guess this was the most frightened I was and had every right to be. Nobody knew where the hell I was. Nobody in America knew where I was. So finally, I was able to go back in, and they said, we've decided you can go back through the Mandelbaum Gate, but you have to take everything with you, and you have to be out of this country within three hours. So I thought... I can do that. I can do that. I remember I got everything quickly. All I had to do was put the shirt in the thing. And I remember I went to the Mount of Olives, which was close to where I would go back to Israel. And I was so relieved, and it was very peaceful. It was a beautiful day. And I sat there on the Mount of Olives, with my knapsack and typewriter. And then after a couple hours, went back wow. through the gate. But that was uh, that was something. That's an amazing story. Do you remember anything that was in the notes from your interview or from your visit to the refugee camp? Well, I remember that the mayor was telling how that it was, you know, when... In 1948, when the Israelis took their land, I mean, that was what they basically did. And what the Israelis said, oh, well, the Arabs got scared and they left their homes. They fled, but they fled because they're being shot at and their houses being burned and everything else. And the refugee camp was just awful to think. It's still there. Is it? People of old generations have been born and grew up and died in that. Where is the camp is in Jordan? 
Yeah. Does it have it, a name? I'm sure it did. I don't remember. It may have been in my notes. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, which are forever gone. Um, I wonder if you can go back. We kind of skipped mm. over the golden my ear. Oh, yeah. And also, I wanted to say, I know you wrote an article called Man from Occupied Territory, which yeah. obviously came from that yeah. experience in Easter. And was that an article that was in Nation? No, or it was in Commentary. commentary. And right. it wasn't right after I came back. It was in the early 60s I wrote that. I remember thinking, boy, there's a good story I have that I haven't right. written. And I just sat down. Actually, I'd love to talk to you about that, too, because the early 60s was a very political time. And I... You know, remember having friends who were moving to Israel then to live in kibbutzes, and yeah. uh, people on both sides were volunteering with the Palestinians, with the Israelis. Yeah. It was a very politicized time, so that's probably why well, I thought about writing that then. Yeah. By the way, I had been writing for commentary. I wrote for both commentary and commonweal in the late 50s and the early 60s. And my connection with commentary, I met a great guy. In fact, his wife got me my passage on the SS Israel to go to Israel. This is a guy, amazing guy, named Moshe Duhovny. This is in New York, and he lived on the Lower East Side, and he was a journalist for the Yiddish Daily Forward, which only ended like a couple years ago, I think. And I met him through Harvey Suedos, who was a novelist, who I met through Seawright Mills. And I remember Moshe introduced me to an editor at Commentary, and I wrote a piece for Commentary about the Lower East Side, and they featured it. It was sort of, when you think of it, it was kind of unique, I think, that a young wasp guy would write the lead story and commentary on the Jewish settlement in the Lower East Side. Interesting. But it was a very still thriving settlement. I mean, within the Lower East Side, there was a Jewish theater, a Jewish newspaper, all kind of called Jewish orchestras, bands, all kind of cultural things. But I remember I was very proud of that, the piece that I wrote. I later wrote a piece for them called The Village and the Tiger, and it was about how the Village Independent Democrats, which is a group of young activists who were trying to get Tammany Hall out of the village. Mm -hmm. And Carmine DiSapio was the head of Tammany. And it was a really interesting clash of sort of the old timers, the old Italian power structure, and the new people from Indiana and places like that. Interesting. Well, wow, there's so many different roads to go down oh, here. Oh, Golda Meir. Yeah, Golda Meir. <laughs> well, toward the end of my set, well, no, when, I think it was in March, 
But my friend in the press office, Jackie Wolfsburg, took me aside, and he was just tremendously helpful with everything, and sometimes took me to dinner. And he said, how would you like to have the first foreign press interview with Gola now that she's become foreign minister? And I thought that would be great. And I was set up, and I went to interview her, and I sort of knew that she wasn't going to tell me some breaking news right. or something. But it was obviously, it was an honor to be there. And she was very polite and easy to talk, but she reminded me of my school lady principal, Miss Fern Hall. And I remember going into Miss Hall's office, and she wore a black dress, and Golda wore a black dress, and had her hair pulled back. And it was just, it was like an honor experience. And the nation published they were happy to have, you know, look like something. And I read up the course on her and found that she was, I think she was born in Minsk in Russia. And then right. from about the age of six, lived in Milwaukee. Did you talk with her at all about her first years living in the Middle East when the kibbutz she was in was still in mandatory Palestine? No, I, you know, it was, I really didn't do any of the interesting things I should have done. I was just doing the pro forma, what's Israel's position on this and that, and what would they do if this and that happened. It, was, it would have been much more interesting if I'd done what you said. Oh, no. And, you know, it reminds me also, only recently did I read somewhere that when Bobby Kennedy was a young man, was just out of law school. He went to Palestine. And when I did that piece on him, I didn't even know that. That's one of my greatest regrets, mm -hmm. was that piece I did that I didn't really prepare for and didn't ask the right questions. But Earlier when we were talking before we started taping, you said something about gold in my ear going into Jordan. And so I was thinking about that as you were talking about your own experience. Yeah. Well, she disguised herself as an Arab, dressed as an Arab, and went in. This was before Israel was a state. And it was some negotiation with King Hussein of Jordan. And she had made some relationship with him to be able to talk. But it was thought of as a very dangerous mission. So whenever I listen to you tell stories about your experiences in reporting in other countries, the stories are a novelist kind of stories, mm -hmm. standing in the cold water under yeah. the stars yeah. or... Did you feel, did you have strong political opinions at all when when you were there? Well, I, 
Yeah. That changed or... No, but I mean, one reason I went was because I was pro-Israel. And when I was there, because the government press office was very kind, everyone was very kind, and so I came back pro-Israel. You know, I felt awful about the... Arab refugee camps and all this stuff, but I didn't really put it all together. Mm-hmm. And it was just that in that era, most of the liberals I knew, which I was one of, was pro-Israel because suddenly, you know, this is after World War II, of the course. Jews for the first time have a homeland. That's what it was all about. And I was proud to be part of that or helping them or being able to promote. So I was like a pro-Israeli guy at that time. You have done a lot of journalism traveling other places to Haiti, for instance, and maybe later we can talk about some of your other adventures. Yeah, I wrote a piece in the nation called Faces of Spain 1958 and I don't remember at all what I said in it but maybe I could <laughs> yeah I would like to read that again so I'm sure it's probably online someplace yeah it's funny how easy it is to forget well but also then, that was let's see 1958 how many years ago was that I know but you can remember 1956 really well yeah it's, um, it's it's interesting actually I wanted to say just for posterity's mm-hmm. sake that we are sitting on your front porch rather than being in the sound booth because this is May 4th it's May the 4th to be with you um, Star Wars Day. But anyway, we're sitting out here because it's May 4th, 2020, and we are experiencing the coronavirus pandemic, and we are social distancing, but we couldn't be in the sound booth at Butler. So if you hear birdsong in the background, uh, cars going by, that's why. And Dan is taking out his mask, and putting it on, and oh, I should take a picture. Um, you just love this picture, it'll be great. <laughs> okay, yeah, this is great. Heim Blanc, the man I told you about, I kept in touch with, but I left Israel in May of 1956 or maybe June, but I think it was July that the Six-Day War Oh, interesting. By about a month, I missed the big war. But I still, in fact, I remember making calls from Boston to Jerusalem to talk to Haim and Judy Blanc. And this is so typical of what Israel was like at that time. That it was like a little club. Everybody knew everybody. When Moshe Dayan got his tank corps ready to go in the desert to fight in Egypt, 
He first called up Heim Blanc and said, listen, we'll be taking prisoners. You want to record some Arab dialects? Oh, my goodness. And Heim went in a tank with Moshe Dayan into Egypt. And when they captured Egyptian soldiers, he recorded, asked them where they were from and recorded dialects. And also, I remember once being in some apartment in Jerusalem with somebody I'd met, and we're hearing this cello, and it was very beautiful. I said, oh, who does that? And he said, oh, that's uh, Golda Meir's daughter, and she plays the cello. But it was like that, and it was like, oh, you know a guy in the Bedouins? Yeah, go to the cafe. Right. (laughs) It was great in that way. It does sound like New York in the 50s. Yeah, it was. So you have another paragraph you're going to read from Returning? Yeah. By the way, the wait when I came back was occasioned by the fact that I was hitchhiking to a kibbutz I'd heard about in the north called Beit Aleph. I wanted to go there because it was, I think, the very first kibbutz in Israel. And... I was hitchhiking. I was in the back of a truck, a small truck. And as we were getting to Beit Aleph, I decided, well, this would be a good place to get off. And I didn't really realize how fast we were going. So I just jumped off the truck. And I broke my arm, oh my broke gosh. out a front tooth and part of it. So and I thought, Jesus. I think I've had it here. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but I remember I got back. I borrowed money to fly back. I flew to Rome, and I was in Rome. I had enough to pay for pension, and then I was really out of money. And I remember meeting a woman in the pension, a young woman, who gave me an apple, <laughs> and. I ate that apple, and I went to the American consulate and said I needed to get on the next flight because I didn't. And so they put me on a flight, and then on the flight they put me in first class. Oh, my goodness. So here I had been eating nothing for a couple of days, and I'm eating this fabulous meal. That was sort of amazing. So I came back. I remember when I got back, I weighed 120 I had my arm in a sling and part of the tooth out. So it was like I was a war veteran or something. Interesting. Oh, yeah, the paragraph. This was about being on the boat in the Sea of Galilee or Lake Tiberias or Lake Canaret. And Nassim was the boat captain. Nassim pushed an oar onto my hands. It was not shaped and smooth like the oars I had held back home, but was simply a long, rough, heavy piece of wood that was larger at one end. There was no oar lock or any sort of metal fixture. The crude oar was simply attached to the boat with rope that fitted over wooden pegs. Abraham manned the other oar while Nassim and Ali 
laid the nets on the black water. The sound of wooden mallets being pounded on the bottom of boats to attract the fish came like some kind of tribal incantation across the sea. Nassim gave quiet commands of forward and back, and we moved with them, pulling, then pushing the heavy oars, Ali and Nassim lifting and laying the nets again. Sometimes I heard the sudden thrash of a fish and saw the silver shape flash in the dark in Nassim's hands. And then we pulled on to another spot, moving in a slow, rhythmic cycle, like the very tides, like the earth itself, as always, forever, in the long dream of life, and the time I had read about in childhood stories of the Sea of Galilee was as real as the time of that night and that water I moved across in the dark. Oh my God, that's gorgeous. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> yes. That nobody else but Susan Neville would have come out in the pandemic <laughs> and let me talk about Israel and my adventures of more than half a century ago. <laughs> so let it be part of the world record. Thank you. Thank you. I don't think there's anyone else I would come out to listen to those <laughs> stories from. And let's not tell my children that I'm out. Thanks again to Mr. Wakefield, and thank you to our listeners for listening. Naptown is taped at Butler University's Irwin Library with the help of Megan Rutledge-Grady. Funding for Naptown was provided by the Ayers Fund, National Endowment for the Humanities, and Indiana Humanities. This is a Dominique Weldon, Rory Deschmer production. Again, this is your host, Susan Neville. See you next time in Naptown. <laughs>